All I can say about days like today when the worship I um, part of the uh, last week's sermon we started was uh, how we become first responders playing off that term that we're all so familiar with and the real idea is not that we're the first responders to a crisis but we're the first responders to acknowledge his presence and uh, I was down there going I don't know if I want to interrupt you Lord uh, his presence is so tangible almost this morning um, and, and yet and, and let me say this not in a way that would put any burden of condemnation or some of you may not have sensed it at all how many of you have been in a meeting and someone gets up and says man the presence of God is amazing right here and it's right now and you're going, I don't even know what you're talking about. If you've been in that, you're not unlike our main character from last week, Jacob. What was Jacob's words? He, he, he tucked his head on a pillow of rock. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know how you have any dreams sleeping. It says he made a pillow out of a rock. Details like that in the Bible, I, I just love it. it he's, it's kind of like he was so tired. He's a young man. Young men don't mind about rocks for pillows. Me, I am the princess and the pea. I would never have ever used a rock for a pillow, at least not now. I might have years ago. In fact, I remember taking cat naps during a construction job on concrete. So, yeah, maybe I did that. The point is, this young man, he's fleeing his twin brother who's threatened to kill him because he has cheated him, and he wakes up at night after having these amazing dreams, and he says, surely God was in this place, and I didn't know it. And part of what we want to talk about tonight, today is just continuing on that idea that so many of us Never become fully aware of the presence of the Lord. And one of the conclusions that we had last week is that sometimes we just have to go to sleep to all that is around us before we can find His. We need to be present so he, His presence can be discovered. Does that make sense? We've got to start living presently. In the moment. That's kind of a new thing. Be present. You know why? That's such a truth that we all kind of identify with. Is because most of us are dominated by our past. What we did wrong or what happened in the past. Or some injustice or some injustice we committed. Or some injustice that somebody committed to us. He just cheated his brother. He lied to his dad. Or we're always looking forward to a future that we can only imagine. And he had a future. What, what, did his, what was his father's instruction? Isaac's instruction to Jacob was, go find a wife with my people. Don't go over here to the Canaanites. Go to my people. That's like me saying, go over to the hitches and the 
Jellicorse clans over there in Tennessee. Don't mess around with all those South Carolinians. And sometimes we just list. Somebody got that. Uh, sometimes we're living in the past or in the future, and we're not really experiencing now. And now is kind of a definition of, of, of the Lord. That's how he self-identified. When, when Moses asked him, who are you? Who, who do I tell him this God is? He, tell him, I am sent you. Say, what? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, if, if I were God, which you should be very thankful that I'm not, uh, but if I were, I wouldn't have said, I am the God of the present. I mean, that's essentially what he was saying. I, I, he was saying a lot more than that, in that I am. And I don't even want to go into the expansiveness of that. But first of all, he is self-existent. But more importantly, he is always present. He, I am with you. I am all that you ever need. I am and just fill in the blank. That's who he is. But the real question is, are you responding? Has your life become so filled with the trivia of the future, hopes and expectations, or so weighed down by the past and some of even your continuous failures that can plague you even as a follower of Christ? That's why he says, there is therefore now no condemnation. In other words, right now, in the present, there isn't any condemnation no matter what your life looks like. I am the God of the I, I am, and I am right now present with you, and I am not condemning you. I want you to run to me. This always freaks out. I'm, I, I, I've used this illustration before, but I want to use it again because i got some college students here. And I have, some, I have some people that are saints who sometimes live like sinners. But you are saints, which means you're holy ones, whether you feel like it or not. It is really hard for you to continue in sin when you start talking to the Father in the middle of your sin. I've had friends that got real sober after getting totally drunk when they started talking to the Lord. Uh, I've counseled a lot of young men who have trouble with porn just just start praying in the middle of it see what happens that's almost the last thing you're thinking about except you know what happens is when the Lord's presence comes in everything else flees so God has Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago and he set term limits on sin he said, it, it, it shall no longer have dominion over you. And that is the truth, but we love to believe the lie because we still listen more to the liar than we do the truth teller. I am the truth. And so what happens is there's a shift that has to take place in all of our lives to where we constantly are becoming first responders. We respond to the presence of the Lord in our life. We find it while sleeping on a rock and fleeing for our life from our twin brother, 
trying to get somewhere where it's much more hopeful and escaping from the present. And that is where the Lord wants to meet every single one of us. And the Bible is filled with story after story. So the Lord prepared him with panic and fear. And what was the Lord's lesson to us? His remedy was to put him to sleep, knock him out. And then he began to reveal to him what the house of God actually looked like. And the house of God looks like this. God speaks, there's angels, and there is the presence of God. That's it. It's not a building. It's not even Jesus coming into your heart, which is incredibly important. He does want to dwell richly, as Brenda read the verse this morning. He wants to come and dwell in our hearts, but more importantly... He wants us to understand. He is not confined to our heart. There's nothing he's confined to, including the circumstances in your life. Nothing that you can go through will ever intimidate him. Therefore, you can never be truly intimidated unless you're focusing on what you're not instead of what you are. And you are in Christ, and he's never seen a problem that he cannot defeat. So let's talk about another character in the Bible, one of all of our favorites. If you've uh, ever gone to Sunday school, if you haven't, I want to tell you. In fact, let me throw up a picture. It's a picture of uh, me in Frankfurt, Germany, and that guy is not the one I want you to focus on. This statue is in Frankfurt, Germany, and I don't know if you can tell, but it looks like a guy sitting on somebody's head. And that's the story of David and Goliath. Uh, I, I, when I saw this picture, I, it, it's in a plaza in Frankfurt, Germany. In, a, in 1983, some artist, uh, sculptor, made this incredible picture. And here this young boy is sitting on top of the giant's head. And for those of you that don't recall all the details, David had been a shepherd boy. David's daddy had completely forgotten about his seventh or eighth son. I can't remember exactly the order. He had seven or eight sons. And the prophet Samuel was looking for, God said, I want you to go to the house of Jesse of the house of Judah. And I want you to anoint the new king. And the previous king, which was the first king of Israel, because God's people had said, we got to have a king like all the other folks. We don't have a king. We got these, these prophets and these judges. And, you know, we're actually supposed to have a relationship with God ourselves. But we really want an intermediary. We really want our preacher to hear God for us. Are somebody spiritual to hear God for us. We don't actually want to hear God for ourselves. And we want somebody to really tell us all about what God's all about. And not so many words. And more importantly, we want to... And here's the way the Lord described. This, this, is, this is the autobiography of God. He basically said to the prophet Samuel, who was supposed to anoint this new king, he said... They, My people have rejected me. 
I'm, I'm their king. And they've rejected me. And this is the nature of God. Is that when we reject him, he does not reject us. Sometimes he just accommodates us and he warns us his accommodation will actually cost us, not because of what he does, but because of our accommodation that he allowed for will create destruction inevitably for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with him. But guess what inevitably happens to the human race? We still blame him, even when he accommodates us. It is our default posture never to accept responsibility for our own stupid decisions. Mostly because we really want something. We have unthrottled desire, and because we have unthrottled desire, we're incapable of actually acknowledging that our unthrottled desire got us into the trouble we're now in. So let me read you the story. Fast forward. David's been anointed king, and there's just this series of events that this Somewhere in his late teens, 18, 19-year-old, he's, he's just killed Goliath. He's now a hero. This, this guy was at least 10 feet tall, ginormous. They say that just calculating the Bible story, weight of the armor on him was 125 pounds. I can just tell you that would take a really serious... I mean, he would... You wouldn't even need an offensive line. Just put him as center, you know. Uh, this guy was huge. And the whole armies, all the armies of Israel were scared to death of him, including King Saul, who happened to be a really good-looking guy, handsome, and a head and shoulders taller than anybody in Israel. So if anybody could have taken this giant on, it could have been Saul, conceivably in the natural. But this kid had been out taking care of this, this young man, this 18, 19-year-old young man, had been out taking care of his dad's sheep. And he had killed a lion and a bear. And he kind of said it in this offhand remark, oh, you know, I've killed lions and bears. I can kill this uncircumcised Philistine, which is really important phraseology. First of all, it's like cussing spiritually. <laughs> this uncircumcised Philistine. And uh, it is a, rec a recognition of someone who know whose he is and who he is. Here's a young man that has more identity than the king that is scared witless. And that king doesn't know who he is. But David does, and you do never get your identity from your parents. You don't get it from the neighborhood you are in. You don't get it in the school you attend. You don't get it in the job you have. You only can get your identity from the Lord who made you. And the problem, we've got a whole world that has never sat in the pasture doing something boring, learning how to know God. And so we have this king. God says he's a king. And here's the other thing. And this is the main point of today's story. Let me just read you. the. Three days later, David has had exploit after exploit 
It's been probably somewhere between 10 and 13 years since David killed Goliath. He has fought for King Saul. King Saul has pursued him because he's jealous of him, because he knows he's rebelled against God. So we come up to a situation where David as is, as I like to say, as low as an ant's belly. It's pretty low. It's hard to fall off the floor, as you all know. That's where he is. You know, he, he, he killed the giant, the champion of the Philistines. Guess where he is now? He's working as a bodyguard for one of the Philistine kings. That's what he's doing. He, he's been so rejected by so many people, and we're going to give you a list of those in just a second, that now he's working as a bodyguard for the, for the Philistine king. He killed their champion 10 or, 15, 10, 10 or 12 years earlier, and now here he is working for these guys. You go, wow, that, that's kind of that's tragic. That sounds like a really sad story. That sounds somebody that graduated from an Ivy League school as an All-American and ends up working as, you know, some lowly job. What happened? He gets word while he's working for these guys that something bad has happened back at his home camp in Ziklag. Three days later, David and his men arrived back in Ziklag to investigate this. And by the way, his men, let me just tell you who his men were. 1 Samuel 22, verse 2 says this, And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to David. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. In other words, these were the, this was not the sharpest and the best and the most elite. These guys were, these guys had all kinds of issues. That's who this, these guys were. The Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag, which was the town where David was camped out. They tore through Ziklag, and they tore it to pieces and burned it down. They captured all the women, young and old. They didn't kill anyone, but drove them like a herd of cattle. By the time David and his men entered the village, it had been burned to the ground and their wives, sons, and daughters all taken prisoner. David and his men burst out in loud wells, wept and wept until they were exhausted with weeping. David's two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, widow of Nabal of Carmel, had been taken prisoner along with the rest. And suddenly David was even in even worse trouble. There was talk among his distressed, discontented, and in debt men, bitter over the loss of their families. Well, let's just stone David. And then this is maybe one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. This next phrase. David's, David strengthened himself with trust in his God. 
David strengthened himself in his trust in God. <clears throat> I was kind of part of the idea that the Lord began to, as I meditated on this, was what, what, what is God's preparation for us for promotion? And last week we called it fear and panic. <laughs> the Lord loves to take negative circumstances in your life and my life, and most of us are just trying to get out of them, aren't we? Your husband or your wife leaves you. Your kid's having trouble with drugs. Your boss is a tyrant and unreasonable. You've lost your job and you can't find one. Every one of these circumstances is, are, this is what we focus on. And the Lord is saying, no, you need to focus on me. I, I arranged this so you could learn to focus on me. And you think it's about that. One of my mentors said this. God fixed to fix to fix you. But many of us try to fix the fix that God fixed to fix us, so God has to fix another fix to fix us. Bob's not here, is he? Okay. First of all, let me just do a little, navigate down a little side trail. The Amalekites. Have you guys uh, <coughs> ever, I mean, how many knows who Thanos is? Thanos. Okay, for a little bit older, Darth Vader. Okay, Darth Vader. How about, uh, here, here's a few. Um, how about... Sauron or Saruman, Commodus and Gladiator. For anybody that likes Superman, and I personally do, Lex Luthor, Megatron, <laughs> Professor Mor Moriarty. Okay, we have a, we. Okay, for some of you guys, you know. So who who am I talking about? I'm talking about an Amalekite. You know, part of. Our problem, and, and I, I want to talk to all of you about this, but especially you folks that are really learning how to fall in love with the Bible, you younger folks. And if there's any older folks that are learning how to fall in love with the Bible, here's what I want you not to do. This is not a textbook. Please don't read it like a textbook. Look, I underline and I circle words and I do all that. But there are days when the Lord says, I put your pens up, I want you to read it. Now, I do study it sometimes. That's in my confession. I do study it like a textbook. But let me just tell you, it's more important that you read it like the story it is. This is a story, and sometimes we, we see these names and we... 
in these places and we think it's geography on a map or some dusty archaeology when it's really talking about Megatron. These are really bad dudes. And the history of these really bad dudes is lost on you because you're reading it like a textbook out of context. And you're trying to, you go, so you read that and you don't know how wicked and bad these Amalekites are. So you know what the word Amalekite, and this is one of the beautiful things, and we, they, you know, this is the downside of being in, in English. The word Amalekite doesn't mean Amalekite. It means to chop off or sever. The Jewish rabbis basically said this, and I'm going to read you something. Let me see if I can find it. This is in Deuteronomy 25. Remember the Amalekite. This is the Lord speaking. Remember what the Amalekite did to you on the way you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, I don't know if you just noticed that, but he told you to blot it out from memory And do not forget to do that. (laughs) The Lord wants there to be no part of this people group. And (laughs) I do not want to get into too much of a side eddy, but let's just put it this way. And look, I've even said this myself. Spiritual warfare is primarily a New Testament phenomena. Old Testament warfare, well, it was just physical. It wasn't spiritual. And a lot of that has to do with what I would call a non-supernatural view of the Old Testament. And what I mean by that, there's some chapters in the Old Testament that are so weird, most of us classify them in the same category as Darth Vader. That's just science fiction. But look, it's in the Bible. And I don't know why God put it in the Bible other than to say it's supernatural. And some of the very supernatural things you read in the Bible, you go, wait a minute, I don't understand this. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean you need to ignore it. Maybe you need to inquire of it. One of the things that happened is evidently something happened with some angels that came down to earth and it polluted the human race. And tons of Bible scholars, it's like this, Let's not talk about this in church. But they like to talk about it endlessly and speculate. And there's all kinds of interchanges throughout the prophets. Look, there, were, there was the equivalent of a hybrid non-human race, according to the scriptures. And people go, Steve, you shouldn't say that in church. Because that's really controversial. I didn't say it. Just read the first five verses of Genesis chapter 6. And God said it and blame it on him. But what I'm speculating here, and I am speculating, is that a lot of these giants and a lot of these guys like Goliath and the people of God was saying, 
eradicate them. And that was evidently the reason for the flood because right after it tells us that story, the flood story happens. And it says the Lord said continuous evil was in the heart of everyone on the planet, evidently except for Noah and his family. My point is this. There's been a... The tolerant, accommodating God has more than us as his creation. Maybe you didn't know that. I mean, a lot of you have been trying, the world is trying to convince you came from a mud pie accidentally. (laughs) You're kind of this self-created accidental chaos. Um, That's about as logical as me finding sand on the beach written out that says, Hello, Joe, and thinking that enough time and chance would cause that to happen. How many of you think that would be silly on my part? I mean, how many of you think that when you're walking on the beach and you see riding in the sand and you think, that just evolved? There was no agency behind it. Okay. Just... Think about that. So what was David's preparation? Well, over and over and over again, after his heroic, youthful adventure, David gets rejected time and time and time and time again. He's rejected. Another way of saying, everybody was canceling his Facebook post. Everybody was removing him from their Instagram account. The whole culture was saying, let's just kill him. First of all, the guy he helped save, Saul, King Saul, he was out to kill him, tried to kill him numerous times. Here's the interesting thing about David. Numerous times David had the opportunity to kill King Saul, and he didn't. This is really important to hold this thought. He, gets, he goes in, the, Phil, the Philistines are, are assaulting this city. He delivers the city. He says, hey, can me and my men stay in this city? They go, yeah, sure. And he gets a hunch, and so he inquires of the Lord, which is another thing about David I want you to notice. David... Ask a lot of questions when he's in a crisis. More than he does complain. He asks a lot of questions. I'm sure there was probably some whining and complaining on David's part. But what we get in the text is he asks, it says, and David inquired of the Lord. This, these city elders, they, they, he inquires of the Lord. And you know what the Lord says? Yeah, they're going to sell you out to Saul, and you're going to be dead if you stay here. You better skedaddle. He goes and meets this guy, and he says, look, I'll pay you. Our men are hungry. The guy's named Nabal. David got so mad at this guy, he almost broke character. He's going to kill him, and the guy's wife says, David, you don't want to do this. That's not who you are. She reminded him of who he was. Sometimes we need people like that. Turns out he, this really bad guy, he died on his own. And then he married 
that really smart woman that knew how to manage him already. Then he goes to the Philistines and says, I'll be your bodyguard. And then when David is, is, is really loyal to this guy, he serves him, he protects him, and the whole Philistine army decides, we're going to go against Israel again. And David says, hey, man, I'm your bodyguard. I'll do it. Now think about this. Here's David in the middle of his life. He's had rejection after rejection of his people. His father, his brothers rejected him. They didn't think he'd amount to anything. They told him to shut up. He's got one incident after another where his life, it's kind of like David, every good deed will be reciprocated in a negative reaction. No good deed goes unpunished. How many of you have ever heard that one? Well, that is somebody that hasn't finished their journey yet. Or they got stuck in their journey, filled with resentment, filled with bitterness, <clears throat> and now incredibly vulnerable to temptation. And the temptation is to completely lose their integrity. Because had Dave, David's assignment was to put the Philistines' uh, warlords in their place. That was his assignment from God. But more importantly, his assignment was to destroy the Amalekites. And I'm not going to get into all the reasons, but he was about to lose his very assignment from God because he was willing, he was under so much pressure, things weren't going right, his boss was terrible, Saul, and he started working for people that he didn't even agree with their values. Everything they stood for, even the gods they worshipped, he rejected. But he was kind of in a position like some of you. You're having to do some things you don't even like. You may be working with some organizations and some people you don't want to work with. You may have moms or dads that actually really despise the Lord Jesus Christ and Christianity. There Whoever it is, there, there's always the temptation for all of us when we get into a circumstance where everything is going on, especially rejection, is rejected people tend to reject people. But sometimes we're in that place. You know what the Lord does? He sends a little affliction to shake us out of our mesmerized state. And he goes, I know what to do. He's about to go to war against Israel that I've anointed him king over. And if he does that, he's ruined his call. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have the Amalekites he needs to deal with anyway kidnap his family and kids, but I'm not going to let them kill anybody. Do you guys see that? God... Sometimes when things get worse from it can't get any worse is exactly the moment the Lord is showing up in your life. Because you know what happens? David 
goes. He inquires of the Lord. He strengthens himself. Then the next verse says he inquires of the Lord. I don't, let's see. Then David prayed to God, shall I go after these raiders? Can I catch them? The answer came, go after them. Yes, you'll catch them. Yes, you will make the rescue. <coughs> so what David does is he goes after the Amalekites. He basically destroys them. All but 400 got away. In other words, he's done what God, almost all that God had, had said, you need to destroy the Amalekites. Matt, you know, Thanos. So rejection is the way the Lord likes to prepare us. Some of you may have been rejected by a husband or a wife. Some of you have been rejected by parents. Some of you may have been rejected by a coach. Some of you have been rejected. Rejection is just part of the state of the fall of human beings. And the, what the Lord is mostly about is letting you become like David, who, when he would almost start, you know, rejected people, reject people. Every time he'd be tempted to slide down that pathway, the Lord would pull him out and he would not reject it. Those people. He never rejected Saul. In fact, when he found out that King Saul had been killed, he wept. How many of you weep when you hear something negative happens to someone that rejected you? You want to you know why David was a man after God's own heart? See, God wanted a king who responded to rejection the same way he does. He's looking for a church Filled with people who, when rejected, never do anything but accept those who rejected them. Are we going to be like the King David? Are we going to be just ordinary? See, that's why Jesus said, bless those who curse you. This is the Old Testament. This is, some of us, I, I, my generation in the Jesus movement, for those of you that young, you don't even know what that may be, but a whole bunch of us back when we were in our 20s, met the teens and 20s, we met the Lord and it was swept across the nation and it was considered and is considered by uh, people that study these things one of the great awakenings in, in the last century, the one behind you. Some of you may not have even been born in that century. <coughs> but but that, that, that century had a lot of negative things, but that was one of the good things. But here's what's happened. A lot of us in that, we had rejection, we got hurt, we wanted to change the church, and sometimes the church didn't want to change, and some of us just got disillusioned. I want to just read you something I wrote. God is in the business of changing us. In Luke 24, verse 31, we have another incident 
Their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our hearts, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? After the resurrection, these two disciples walking down the road, and Jesus comes up to them and talks to them, and they never recognize him. And here's something I wrote. We can easily identify with the disciples walking with Jesus after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. Like them, we have our own ideas and ambitions that keep us from correctly perceiving Jesus or his kingdom realities. That's even after he clearly tells them to us. Our default focus is on what is temporary and seems to benefit us given our current value systems and worldview. His focus, on the other hand, is the eternal. The quality of one's life as a follower of Christ depends on the choices made. This is particularly true of how we choose to hear. Tragically, we grow very attached to destructive choices based not on listening very well. When Jesus tells us that the kingdom is not like the ones in this world, we inevitably listen with our own cultural filters. When Jesus asks us to lose our life and take up our cross, he's inviting us to lose or let go of our bad choices. This could come in terms of beliefs, relationships, value systems, dreams, or habits. When we experience loss, we also tend to overvalue that loss. I won't deny that there can be a vacancy that is palpable. We do have to make a choice that facilitates an exchange with Jesus, which can take some time. It is in those intervening moments of distress and discomfort on the cross where our loyalty to Jesus' way is often tested, that we lose our will to continue following Him. We remain oblivious to the eternal gains only moments away when we have received what we have taken up in our cross and then stuck with it. Disappointment empties us of our personal vanities and false expectations. Disillusionment eradicates the untruth from our presuppositions and moments and, and motives. How many of you raise your hand? Hey, how many of you want to be disillusioned? Let me ask that question again. How many of you want to be disillusioned? You still think it's a trick question. It's not. I want to be disillusioned because God is not into illusions, people. And it's not a trick question. You go, well, I don't really want to go through it. That's called the cross. We read the story about martyrs and think that it's not, those martyrs weren't tempted to quit and, and deny Jesus. And some of them may even started to do it and even did it. I've talked to people that have been persecuted in the persecuted church. And you know what they say? I denied him. Wait a minute. I, I just read the story where you didn't deny him. Well, eventually I got to the point where I didn't. 
We have these ideas that, I mean, it's almost like a Dostoevsky novel, okay? It just kind of sounds depressing, and you're going, Steve, you're really making me depressed. You're encouraging me to seek disillusionment and disappointment, and what I'm telling you to do is when it happens in your life, look around because your Savior is near. Guess what happened after David? You know what happened to David after he went after his family with the Amalekites? Guess what happened? Very next chapter. He becomes the king because the king gets killed right after that. King Saul. And David becomes what he was supposed to be. But had he missed those few moments, he would have really certainly messed up. Can I just encourage all of us to stand and listen? Most of us spend our entire life trying to control our future, either deny or ignore our past, and we fail to really live in the present. And we do it because we have these illusions, or we don't want to face our disappointments instead of going, I want to metabolize my disappointment and my disillusionment to teach me about the reality so that I can actually see Jesus standing right in front of me. Jesus is always standing right in front of you. Did you know that? He'll never leave you nor forsake you. For some people, that's a promise. For the rest of you, that's a threat. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with you. But how many of you go, I just can't find the Lord? How many of you have ever just, God just seems a million miles away? In fact, you even doubt He's there. That is the moment where He is more than willing to intervene. And can I just tell you one of the most important things you can do in those moments? is inquire of the Lord. He is not intimidated by your questions, ever. How many of you have developed a habit of asking the Lord a question? Now, let me just... You guys remember the trees in Lord of the Rings, the big... What do they call them? Ents. Ents. The Ents. The Lord's kind of like an Ent sometimes when you ask Him a question. Because he is the ancient of days and he's very wise. And sometimes his delay in answering your question is just trying to see how curious you really are. But I want you to de- deal with any disappointments of your future or your past. You didn't get into the school you wanted to, you didn't get into the, the girlfriend you wanted, the boyfriend. That guy didn't like you, he liked somebody else. Maybe you didn't get the career. Maybe you lost the job that was your dream job. I don't know. There's a disappointment. There's a disillusionment. You know, well, you know, that church isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. If that was this church, are you kidding me? Of course it's not. That's why we, you know, I'm trying to be the anti-seller these days because, you know what? Let's just get you disillusioned. Somebody came to me and said, you know, I really... You know, I've been in this church and I've been in that church and 
oh, this seems like a really good church. I go, eh, we'll probably disappoint you too. You know why? We disappoint ourselves, don't we? I just want you to do business with the Lord. Is there, is there some areas in your life where you're struggling and you just, you're disappointed, maybe you're disillusioned, maybe you felt rejection, maybe you're in panic or fear, maybe there's some big negative issue in your life and you're struggling with it and you're not doing very well. Or maybe that's all you obsess over. And maybe some of you are on top of the world and everything's going great and you're riding the wave. Well, now's the time for you to worship Him and, and deeply commit yourself to Him. I'd like for the elders and some of the prayer team to come forward. And I want to invite you to consecrate yourself that you will never allow rejection and disappointment and disillusionment with your with yourself with the Lord with each other to determine your trajectory because you either I meet so many bitter Christians who can't it's what this is absolutely the reason the body of Christ struggles in our reputation with the world Everyone knows where to be the most forgiving, non-rejecting people on the planet. Even when we're rejected. And that's who God's called us to be. It's more than cultural Christianity. It's radical call to be lovers. And we have to respond to the Lord. He's the only one that can change us. So I want to invite you to come and I want you to invite, invite you to kneel before the cross in your life. If any of you have never asked Jesus into your heart, I, I, want, I want you to do that. He will, he will fill your life and invite you to take up your cross. Because there's stuff in your life that will keep you from becoming like him until you get rid of it. All right. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you. We thank you that your precious word shows us so many insights on how to have victory over our, our enemies, our Amalekites. <coughs> in Jesus' name, amen.